Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader. Today is Sunday. It's September 4th, 2022. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service for individuals who are blind or have difficulty accessing printed material. The newspaper is donated to Radio I by the publisher. And your reader today is David Hapley. So let's begin with the WKYT five-day forecast. And as we get into September, things are taking a decided turn in a more fall-like way. Today, which is Sunday, it'll be cooler, high of only 77 degrees, low of 69. Heavy thunderstorms are in the forecast. Monday, shower and thunderstorms return, high of 78, with a low down to 66. We'll get a little bit more sun on Tuesday. The high will be 80, with a low of 65, a thunder shower, and humidity will be in the air. Wednesday, high of 80, low of 64, a couple of showers. Um, and then finally on Thursday, we'll see a little bit of sun. It'll be high of 82 with a low of 63. So beginning today on Sunday and heading through the Labor Day weekend, tomorrow we're going to have rain and storms in the forecast much of the time uh, as we turn the corner into fall. And let's just check precipitation today to see where we are relative to rainfall. And normal is 35 and a half inches this time of year. And we're at 37 and one half inches. So we're just about on track with our annual rainfall levels. And for those that are watching the moon cycles, the next full moon will be in just six days, which is on September 10th. So that is the WKYT five-day forecast. And now we'll turn to the opinion section and Paul Prather. The Reverend Prather teaches or preaches in uh, Mount Sterling, Kentucky, and he submits a piece to the Lexington Herald-Leader every week. And fortunately, this week is no exception. And it's entitled, Politics Have Turned Jesus' Teachings Upside Down. Paul Prather. In a recent essay, the conservative Christian writer David French lays out three premises about the the political predicament of American Christians. French, a former staff writer for the National Review, is now an editor at the Dispatch and a contributor to the Atlantic Magazine. First, he says, despite declining rates of religious belief and church attendance, the United States remains statistically the most Christian country of any advanced democracies. Our country not only ranks near the top in religious adherence, but also in religious intensity. Quote, 
there is not one other true peer nation that is both Christian and where most people say their faith is very important. He writes, Second, Republicans and Democratic parties alike depend on devout members for their success. Non-white Democrats, especially black Democrats, are, quote, are among the most God-fearing, church-going members of American society, says French. And the Republican Party would be irrelevant without its white evangelical base. Third, despite items one and two, our political culture remains toxic, polarized, and increasingly violent. Given the first two factors mentioned above, French said, this should not be the case at all. After all, Jesus could not have been more clear. In John 13, he declared, By this everyone will know that you are my, are my disciple if you love one another. As strident as others. Quote, oh, hang on just a minute. But Christian voters are as strident as others. Quote, the mutual loathing you see comes from people who could recite every syllable of the Apostles' Creed side by side and believe wholeheartedly in the divine inspiration of Scripture, French observes, all of which leads him to a noteworthy conclusion. I am convinced that our Christian political ethics are upside down. On a bipartisan basis, the Church has formed its members to be adamant about policies that are difficult and contingent and flexible about virtues are clear and mandatory. I would agree with, I would disagree with French on many political issues, but I absolutely agree with him on this. He has been, he is saying what I have been trying to say for years. He uses discussion of one of his favorite scriptural passages, Micah 6, verse 8, quote, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of... Uh, just a minute, please. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This passage is deceptively simple. Each of the three virtues named in the passage from Micah lies in tension with the others. Humility forces us to recognize our personal limitations and the limitations of the political arena. How do you close the racial achievement gap in education? How do you reduce crime? Who can say for sure? Quote, when I encounter the most patriotic preachers and public Christian personalities, I'm often gobsmacked at the inverse relationship between their political certainty and their political knowledge, French says. The less they know about the issue, the more confident they're obviously right. The challenge is that while we must always recognize we can be wrong about any political matter, we can't be paralyzed. We might be wrong, but we have to do our best to what's right, as best as we can discern it, French says.
But as soon as we decide to grit our teeth and do justice, we run into the third virtue, love and kindness. How many times have we heard the claim that the old rules of civility and decency are simply inadequate for the times? French asks. That's a core argument of the new right, for example. We tried decency, then they say, it doesn't work. Now it's time to punch back. That mindset is absolutely opposed to biblical ethics. You don't just act kindly until kindness doesn't work. You're to be kind even through the most brutal acts of repression and in the face of, of complete political defeat, he said. Balancing is necessary, but instead of balancing these virtues, what U.S. Christians have done is create a hierarchy of them. Christians don't outright reject loving, kindness, or humility. They just assign them secondary status. When push comes to shove, it's our vision of justice that matters, he says. This imbalance has produced much of the self-righteous anger and moral relativism evident in contemporary Christian politics. Here's the paradox. Forsake one virtue for another and you increase the chances that you gain nothing at all, French writes. To put it another way, when we transgress moral laws, we're fools if we think we can control the consequences. Deciding that winning is all that counts, no matter what the means, you end up with bad religion, bad politics, and bad outcomes. Notably, the scriptures are far more specific about biblical virtues than about biblical justice, he says. The doing of justice, French calls, is the what of politics or the specific politics of Christian support can evolve differently in different countries at different times. But the how of politics doesn't evolve at all. The how requires genuine kindness and humility in places, all places, all the time. Quote, and so, our arrogance, we think we know better than God, French concludes. We can't let kindness and humility stand in the way of justice. Yet, we're sowing the wind, and now we reap the whirlwind. The world's most advanced Christian nation it tearing, is tearing itself apart and its millions of believers bear much of the blame. And that's Paul Prather for Sunday, September 4th, 2022. And now we're going to do a little, we're going to do a profile that's on the front page of today's paper, and it is about... Doug Charles, and he's a local fellow here in Lexington, so let's see what the what the article's about. Lexington Christian Academy's Doug Charles has become a renowned servant leader after a lifetime of trials positioned him perfectly for the road role. And this is reported by Jared Peck of the Higher Leader.
For the second year in a row, Lexington Christian Academy head coach Doug Charles faced a locker room full of tears at the end of the dimly lit Kroger Field Tunnel last December. His Eagles, perhaps the best Lexington Christian Academy team in more than a decade, overcame two fumbles and a 20-0 second quarter deficit to take the lead deep into their Class 2A state championship rematch with Beachwood. But LCA could not answer the Tigers' go-ahead field goal for the 23-21 margin with one, one minute and 50 seconds left in the game. Beachwood got the best of LCA the year before, too, blocking an extra point in overtime for a 24-23 win on the same field. As Charles left last December's post-game press conference to meet his players, LC Athletic Director Terry Johnson stepped alongside him. He put his arm around me and said, Are you okay? Charles recalled. I said, Terry, I'm fine. I said, I'm just trying to gather myself to get the right words to say to my guys. Because this is a tough moment for them. Charlie knows tough moments. He's been more, he's had more than his share. The benefit of being old, he jokes. I've had Failures and losses. I buried two children. I've been through life, Charles said. Life is fraught with highs and lows. I've had some really high highs and some really low lows. And I'm just going to tell you this. The good Lord is still on the throne and the sun is coming up tomorrow. The 61-year-old Pikeville native likes to say he's lived four lives. This latest incarnation might be his best yet. A father, a stepfather, a grandfather of a clan that includes two young adopted children and another in the wings over the last few years with his fourth wife, Mitzi, Charles remains constantly on the go. Family and football sometimes also share his business ventures as a successful real estate developer. And Charles' seemingly boundless optimism and care for his player runs so deep that he kept a secret, a diagnosis he received earlier in the fall. Charles has prostate cancer. He finally told the team a few weeks ago after the title game and just a short time before his surgery. There were more tears that day, but the season had to be about them, not about him. He's the coach. Growing up fast, before Charles was old enough to drive, he wound up married with a baby on the way as a freshman at Pikeville High School. Imagine being a freshman in high school. Think about the humiliation. Think about all the shame and stuff you brought on your family. But the baby born to Charles and Tulia Ray Charles in May died three days later. It was unexpected, even though she was premature. We thought it would be okay, 
Charles said. Jessica Ray Charles was buried in Pikeville's Johnson Memorial Cemetery less than a month after the young couple exchanged vows. They remained married and resumed high school, living in a 12 by 40 mobile home purchased together by their parents. As a senior, Charles led the state in scoring as the Panthers' running back despite missing two games with the hook pointer. Twilia was homecoming queen. Pikeville went 12-1 that season with a loss coming in the Class 2A region finals to Somerset. I was skinny as a rail, but I could run really fast. And I had really good coaches. Said Charles, who played for Pikeville's all-time coaching wins leader, Hillard Howard. Charles had few offers to continue playing football in college, but being married and starting his own family took a priority. He went to work instead. By the time I was 21 years old, we had three kids, all 15 months apart. First came James Douglas, then Jordan, and then Holly. The family outgrew the mobile home. After a stint selling cars at his father's dealership, Charles took a job as a collections agent for Citizens Bank, knocking on doors from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. It was not fun work, but Charles had an act. Pretty soon, he was made a vice president at the bank, and that led to an opportunity to help other banks with their collection efforts. He began moonlighting with his own repossession business. Quote, it wasn't two months before I was making more money at night than I was during the day, Charles said. I'd get off work at the bank, go help my wife get the kids bathed and have dinner with them, leave about eight 8.30 and get home 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. The repossession venture continues today in five Kentucky cities and is run by some of his family members. Never far from football. Even with a young family and two jobs, Charles kept his hand in football. He volunteered for the local youth league, the middle school league, and high school. The reason I stayed in football was because it was the closest thing I could get to Friday Night Lights, Charles said. It was a void. You talk about a guy that loved it? I started coaching the Packers in Pikeville. It's a team I played for when I was a little boy, and I know how much that meant to me. As a young man, Charles coached some of the kids who would go on to win three straight state titles for Coach Howard at Pikeville. Current Pikeville coach Chris McNamee was on the first of those championship teams in 1987. He remembers Charles being around the youth program. Quote, when I was in what we called the Little League here, at the end of the season, you'd have an all-star team. And, that, and he was one of my all-star team coaches, McNamee said. I just remember him as being a nice guy. The Winding Road to Lexington. 
Charles Business Savvy grew. He became vice president of an oil company, which had dozens of convenience stores in eastern Kentucky. Charles said they pioneered the idea of including major fast food restaurants in them. But, but along the end, his first marriage to Twilla ended in divorce after 15 years. Twilla later remarried, and she and Charles remained not just friends, but she's like a sister. He said, a second marriage followed along with another daughter, Lauren, but the union only lasted eight months. Failing to convince his bosses to let him buy the oil company, Charles took the contracts he gained in the industry and moved to Lexington with his third wife, Sandy Hobson Charles. They had two children together, Savannah and Paxton. At the height of their success, they owned and operated 35 restaurants in three states uh, uh, and with more than 1,100 employees. Maybe the most notable of their creations still standing is Gaddytown on Nicholasville Road, although Charles no longer owns it. I had dudes that could play. In Lexington, Charles still wanted to feed his football cravings and reached out to the City Parks Department to volunteer. I went over there at idle hour and I started coaching seven and eight-year-olds, Charles said. I didn't know a soul, but it just worked and we started having fun. As the kids got older, Charles wound up moving up divisions with them until they aged out and then he'd cycle back down to the youngest again. As his team won, city champions turns into, into Thanksgiving Day trips to play in national bowl games in places like Chattanooga and Daytona Beach. I coached two or three teams and had 13 Thanksgivings in a row where we were scheduled different days to have Thanksgiving because I got a bunch of kids in Daytona Beach, Florida, or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or the Choo Choo Bowl, or whatever Charles said. Charles recalls those stories as fondly as any of his accomplishments. In 2002, his 9- and 10-year-old Idle Hour Packers won their division in the National Youth Football Championship in Daytona Beach, Florida, over a team from Nashville. I had dudes that could play, Charles said. Troubled times hit hard. Toward the end of the 1990s, parts of Charles' life began unraveling. Charles' idea to put mall-like food courts into small towns didn't catch on, and other restaurants began to falter. I had to get out of the restaurant business because if someone had told me you could make a million dollars in the restaurant business by starting with two million, I wouldn't have done that. Um, Charles joked. Shortly after the birth of their second child together, Charles' third wife left. He became a divorced dad again, this time with a two-year-old and an eight-month-old. Also, during this time, Charles' oldest son, James Douglas, Jim Doug Charles, struggled with 
addiction. The OxyContin epidemic had swept over the nation and especially eastern Kentucky. And it hit home hard for Charles. We went through that for six years, battling it with rehab, the whole nine trying to rescue him out, Charles said. I thought I had him on the shore several times. Charles stopped. In a later interview, Charles said Jig Dog had been a pallbearer for three of his best friend's funerals. Maybe that we get through. I mean, they buried 50-some kids in 18 months down there when it all happened, Charles said. In, 20, in January 2005, at the age of 24, Jim Doug Charles died of an overdose. There were 700 people at the funeral. Revelation, revelation of Faith at my darkest day, after I'd lost my son, had a business failure, there was a divorce. Thank God I didn't turn to drugs or alcohol. Thank God I just went back to my roots and got deeper in my faith and started looking for to help other people. On a mission trip to Haiti during those years, Charles learned a lesson that both spoke to how he approached life and solidified a sense of purpose in it. As he volunteered in a clinic there, Charles felt overwhelmingly the abject poverty and misery the Haitian people endure. You spend there all day just to get completely emotionally and physically drained, he said. He asked one of his missionary friends, John Hansen, how he coped. Hansen told him a version of the starfish story, a tale adapted from another work that is an inspiration to many. It goes something like this. Two boys are walking on the shore. Suddenly, they see thousands of starfish stranded on the beach. One of them instinctively begins throwing some back in the water so they might survive. As his buddy says, Joe, what are you doing, man? He says, can't you see, man? There's thousands of these things. It don't matter. Charles recounts from the tale in his own words. And Joe reaches down and picks one up and looks at it and shows it to his buddy. And he tosses it back in the water and say, well, it mattered to that one. After his third separation and divorce, Charles swore off women for good. Mitzi Johnson, that, and that lasted eight months. Mitzi Johnson was a divorced mother whose two kids played for, young kid Weston played for the Idle Hour Packers. She laughed at her initial impression of Charles, but at the time she didn't appreciate her son's coach grabbing him by the helmet to tell him his mother needed to get him a haircut. There's still disagreement about whether the flowing locks obstructed the boy's vision. The next fall, a newly single Charles remembered the long-haired boy and his single mom. Charles jokes about he got two picks in his youth league draft that season. Weston and Mitzi Johnson returned to Charles's idol, our Packard. By the end of the 
on end of the season banquet, the two were dating, but both hesitated to get married. Married, their courtship lasted thirteen years. Charles finally proposed on the Idle Hour Park football field where they met. They married in two thousand twelve. Well, we're deep into the story about uh, Mr. Charles, and we're going to continue it in just a minute, so please stay tuned. Let's continue our profile this morning in the Lexington Herald Leader of Mr. Charles. Uh, His uh, son has just passed away, and he has just proposed to his fourth wife after a uh, 13-12-year courtship. Refilling the Nest Mitzi Charles came from a large family with 11 siblings. She ran her own daycare business and knew she, knew she wanted to care for more children one day, thinking foster parenting would be the best route. After her marriage to Charles, however, those plans took a different turn. We got a call one day from my wife's brother, and he said, Hey, there's a little boy. He's 15 months old, and he's running around a trailer park. His dad's in jail, and his mom's on drugs. And the state's going to take him. Charles said, The grandparents don't want him to get lost in the system, but they're not able to take care of him. Could we bring him over to you all for just a few days till we can figure out what's going to happen? Cody stayed with the family for a while, but his custody wasn't settled. Mitzi, but his custody wasn't settled. Mitzi and Doug talked about it all day before the last hearing. Mitzi's children were grown. Charles' youngest were in senior and junior in high school. They would soon to be empty nesters, couple middle-aged. How would the older children and the teenagers react? What would it mean for spending time with them and the grandchildren? What would people think? And could they raise another child into their 60s? The concerns and debt and doubts mounted. The older children, Paxton and Savannah, overheard the conversation. They came into my office with tears in their eyes, and they said, Daddy, is there a chance we could lose Cody? Charles' voice cracked as recounted that evening. They said, We love that little boy. Charlie, Charles remembered the tale. Well, it made a difference to that one. The boy Charles, sometimes referred to as Starfish One, has been with them ever since. Three years later, another call came. The same mother was expecting again. The new would-be father died of a drug overdose. Six months pregnant with another boy she couldn't support, the mother was in jail on probation violation. 
She called us two weeks out and said, you want to keep those boys together. Charles adopted Caden, Starfish 2. Most recently, the Charles took in another boy at six weeks old. Since they've gained full custody of Charlie, Starfish 3, who was now 2, Caden 6, and Cody 10. They've been such a blessing to us, Charles said, and it's kept us young. Shortly after Charles' son Paxton cycled out of the Parks and Rec football program, Charles decided to quit youth coaching. He had a retirement banquet, and he sold his gear. That lasted four months. A lunch meeting with the Lexington Christian Academy board member James Stuckey came with an extraordinary offer. He said, we've, lot, we've heard a lot about you coaching kids and different things, and we'd love to have you consider coming over here. Charles said, we'll give you our full autonomy of our youth program. Two hours later, I'm back in coaching. Finally, in 2009, after decades coaching youth team, Charles found something where family, faith, and football intertwined completely. Even as varsity head coach today, Charles continues to oversee all levels of the Lexington Christian Academy's Football program. Football has always been a ministry to me, Charles says. In some organizations, you're not allowed to openly profess your faith, but you can do it in the way you live your life, in the way you care. Early on at LCA, just like his Parks football days, Charles would coach a team and then shepherd them to the system as they aged up. A who's who of high school standouts came up through the years of LCA ranks, including eventual Frederick Douglass stands out Walter Parks, now at Clemson, and Jager Burton, who was named co-Mr. Football. In Kentucky, soon Charles had a state championship, eighth grade team composed of players who would become the heart of LCA's varsity these last two years, players like Xavier Brown, now at Virginia, Mason Moore, now at Miami of Ohio, and Anthony Jones, now at EKU. Stepping into the spotlight, with his eighth grade champions moving up, Charles got his first official title, quarterback coach. Charles doesn't take credit for being a quarterback coach, but he did become kind of a CEO of the team helping handling fundraising and parent issues for LCA head coach at the time, a very young Ethan Eckley. When Etchley resigned to take on a bigger school challenge at Bullet East in 2019, there was only one man that LCA athletic director Terry Johnson wanted for the job, and even though Charles had never coached a high school game in his life. That was a great football operation, but it wasn't quite yet the family that you strive for, Johnson said. And Douglas and Doug's business acumen and how he runs his businesses and how he really motivates and enables people that work under him to really grow, I thought that's what we needed at the time. Lexington introduced Charles as new football head coach in front of family, friends, and staff 
during a basketball game that winter. It was a dream job for someone whose coaching resume didn't extend much beyond the idle hour Packers. The next day, an anxious and giddy Charles entered a locker room that was in okay shape, but maybe not as clean as he would have liked it. He scrubbed and organized it from corner to cutter. But as he examined his handiwork, doubts surfaced. It just hit me, man. I just started breaking out crying. I said, God, I can't do this without you. I got no shot. He began to pray. And I'm telling you, just as clear as I'm talking to you right now, God said, son, don't worry. I trust you to teach people how to be the hands and feet of me. And I'm going to send you people, kids, from places you've never imagined, because I trust you, Charles McCall. Under Charles, LCA has gone 34-6 and with two state final appearances with an expert staff, including the exceptional office offensive mind Oakley Watkins and the defensive prowess of former Kentucky and NFL linebacker Marty Moore, the Class 2A Eagles' only losses have come from four eventual state championships, Class 5A powerhouse Frederick Douglass and Class 6A Madison Central. The call you can always make. With all that happening in Charles' own life, he feels there's no problem any of his players could face outside of his comfort goes. I tell my guys, I'm not judgmental, okay, Charles says. I said, I'm shockproof. Try me. Charles relates to his players through his own personal struggles in his gentle, soft-spoken manner. The only thing I think I learned from all the experience is that I don't blame others when things happen. I don't point fingers, Charles said, and generally it's because of decisions I've made how things have turned out. It's just part of the ministry. I always believe that God has a way of shining a light on darkness at some point in time. It's not a foolproof strategy, but it is a strategy. Charles offers counsel. He does not make decisions for them. You go back and say when kids take the wrong road. How'd that happen? Even my own son. How'd that happen, Charles said. His younger brother, that's 15 months apart, never cost me a minute's trouble in his life. Charles has resolved that his players will know at least one thing he cares. Not just about how they play, but who they are. He, he just knows how to touch your heart when he talks. It feels like you can say anything you want to to him, but he will never get mad at you, said Senior Drew Neves. He'll tell you how to get up. He'll tell you how to get out of stuff. He's always there for you. He's always there for the team. That goes for former players, too. He's told kids, I'm the 2 a.m. fall that you can make whether you're... Twenty years out of the program, or a year out of the program, or whatever, LCA Johnson says, and that, and that's, I think, probably the biggest attribute he has. He keeps it real. Charles' oldest daughter, Holly Charles, remembers the coach, the youth football days her dad coached, always being a part of their lives. There was almost never a holiday that we didn't have an extra kid at the table. 
Holly, Charles said, noting that he's become a father figure for many. He's walked kids out on senior nights and graduations. Holly admits there were times sharing their dad with seemingly everyone was different, but as she's grown older, she fully appreciates the impact he's had on people's life. I'll have people stop me and say, your dad came to me in the middle of the night when my dad died. He was my first phone call, Holly says. There's another kid who came up to me in a parking lot in Lexington and said, I was getting ready to take my own life, but then I called your dad and he came to me. I just want you to know how awesome your dad is. Such stories might be exaggerated, but the emotion in Holly's voice rings true. We had our dad, and he has meant so much to us in so many different ways, Holly Charles said. But all that time away from us, there's a reason. It's bigger than us. Charles helps players learn from his examples, too. He really tries to make sure that they understand things outside of playing football, he says. Says more, LCA's defensive coordinator. It's more about life, helping others, and being a servant leader. He's definitely a servant leader to these kids and to the community. That's when flooding hit Kentucky. That's why when flooding hit Kentucky, a few weeks ago, Charles and many of his players went to Breathitt County to help out however they could. Breathitt football field and locker room set a stone's throw from the river fork of the Kentucky River and the Oxbow, Oxbow Pan Bowl Lake, and almost everything the team owned was covered in mud. And what the LA team, what the LCA team couldn't clean on site. They loaded up on their trailer, and they brought it back to Lexington. Charles noticed something about his health during the dog days last August practices. I just started having some pressure. Just urine flow wasn't normal, and I didn't feel right, he said. When his prostrate, prostate didn't run, respond to treatment, Charles had a biopsy. While his staff and players were taking their mid-season bi-week vacation, Charles was in a Pikeville hospital getting checked by a urologist friend of his son, Jordan. He called me the following Tuesday and said, I wish I had better news for you, but you've had cancer in 11 out of 12 biopsies, and it's pretty progressive. Charles kept the news from everyone at LCA, but Watkins, his assistant, his associate head coach, and Johnson, his athletic director. The morning of LCA's senior night home game against Somerset, Charles underwent six hours of scans at a Lexington hospital to see if the cancer had spread anywhere else. He wouldn't find out results until Monday. That night, he never let on that anything was amiss. We're in a playoff run. We're dialed in there, brother, Charles said. There were 16 seniors, and it was an emotional night. Anyways, just because I've been with those guys, a lot of them, since they were in the fourth grade. I just focused on them, and it was kind of a blessing in disguise with all the other stuff going on. 
they kept me really busy. The scans were negative. Charles scheduled prostate removal surgery for February. The procedure by Lexington doctor Thomas Slyball removed the process, the prostate and lymph nodes. His months of recovery are ongoing. I feel great, but things don't work right, Charles admits, describing himself as fully fit, but not completely back to normal. But it was a pretty easy decision to have the surgery. Just the thought of having cancer deep in my body, I've heard some other stories that did, did not turn out so well. More than winning. With wins at LCA come with a rough and rowdy rendition of a popular Christian hymn. Victory in Jesus, sung by the players near the center of the field. For LCA's Christian faithful, it's a rousing moment and a fitting celebration. How best to deal with this disappointment, though, when his players give everything they have to win and come up short. What then? That's what Charles faced in December at Kroger Field. Quote, It's easy to talk about what a great team they are when the media puts the microphone in your face, Charles said. But what do you do after a tough loss on a big stage when a majority of people feels you should have won the game? How do you celebrate then? Do you say, do you not sing victory in Jesus? Do you let your enemy steal your joy? If I let that loss define, define us, me as a person, me as a coach, our program, and our kids, if that loss is what defines us, then I have done a horrendous job as head coach of this program. Terrible. One day, Charles Players will face bigger problems than the loss of a high school football game. Those stakes pale in comparison to the life of the daughter or the son or a love from your life. But there's a lesson in every loss, no matter how small. And Charles knows what he must do as coach. His faith tells him where there's a plan on all of it, his joy and his sorrow. The key is to persevere. Keep trying, keep loving, keep helping. He's living. The key is to persevere, keep trying, keep loving, keep helping. He's living proof of that. Quote, God's honored every bit of it, man, Charles said. I think he's been grooming me for this my whole life. And that is Jason. That was written by Jason Peck. Um, now we move on to Southern Supper Series coming to Lexington. Three local restaurants do oyster dinners. A new supper club is coming to Lexington with a focus on Southern oysters. Pete and Pearls is a regional supper club in eight cities across the South. Founder T.G. Strickland created the food event in 2017 to bring together producers of farm-raised Gulf oysters and chef. The dinners are designed to showcase southern oysters and whiskey, as well as other locally grown foods. 
Strickland started the supper series after seeing the economic devastation that oyster growers were facing. He since expanded to focus on a variety of farm-to-table foods. What we do is focus on culinary rela- storytelling, relationship building, connections to people as a source of their sustenance, Strickland says. Now more than ever, we are alienated from each other in our supply chain. I hope telling the story of the ecosystem will reconnect people with farmers who produce the food. There are three Pete's and Pearl's dinners planned for Lexington this fall. Cole's at 735 Main Street with Chef Cole Aramis September 8th. It's $175 per person. Lockbox at 167 West Main Street in the 21C Museum downtown with Chef Nicholas Fischer-Kelper, $150 per person. I guess I better save up. Honeywood, 110 Summit at Fritz Farm, number 140, with Chef, with Chef Cody DeRosset, November 3rd, 150 bucks per person. Tickets are available to buy, first to members and then to the public, uh, when they're available. Menus will vary by season, and the fall season will be built around oysters, a winter series that will focus on heritage grains. Strickland is also planning a spring social called the Hoe Cakes Throwdown that will focus on Hoe Cakes, H-O-E, and craft whiskey. Tickets for that event will be available later this year. Quote, we're really looking, for, we're really looking to build a community of people who are not only excited about good food, but also want to build a community of people who care about where their food comes from, building strong food systems, understanding their community, Strickland says. We really have a big focus on food as a vehicle for storytelling, building relationships, and community. Hope to remind people of all the things that bring us together. Food will always be at the top of that list. And a quick about note about the recent um, debt forgiveness program in Kentucky. Student debt forgiveness won't be taxed as income. Contrary to some news reports and now correct analysis from the Tax Foundation, Kentucky will not tax as income student loans forgiving through a new plan announced by President Joe Biden. Jeff Jill Midkiff, the head of communications at the state's Finance and Administration Cabinet, told the Herald Leader in an email that federal borrowers in Kentucky won't be hit with a surprise income tax bill for savings realized through the administrator's debt relief plan. The plan, which will extend up to $10,000 to $20,000 in loan forgiveness to eligible borrowers at a minimum of absolute uh, hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians of their student debt in a uh, study from the Kentucky Centers for Economic Policy. So, good news for uh, students who will have their debt repaid by the government. They will not be responsible for income taxes on that money. And next, Lexington University's Change Public COVID Updates 
as class resumes. As classes resume this fall, two Lexington University universities are changing how they report COVID data. Both the University of Kentucky and Transylvania University are moving away from publicly available COVID dashboard and will look at CDC's community reporting level. Last academic year, the UK dashboard was regularly updated with a number of COVID-19 infections, test results, and vaccinations among the campus community. We are no longer publishing a dashboard at the institutional level, which is similar to what a number of institutions and entities across the region are doing, such as Fayette County, UK spokesperson Jay Blanton said. We are moving from a status of responding to a pandemic to continued management of a transmissible virus, much like the flu and other public health issues that will require community support. This summer, the Lexington Fayette County Health Department announced it would no longer post its COVID-19 data online. Instead, the health department will move to weekly updates. Blanton said there were several reasons for the move move at UK, including the availability of COVID data from the UK community. We don't require either or testing or vaccines as both as both can now be widely found in other places so we don't have a rigorous source of information for rag, for vaccination rates in our community Blanton said Fayette County is considered high risk for community covid transmission as of September 1st, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. That designation is based on the number of new COVID cases and COVID-related hospitalizations. In counties that have a high risk level, the CDC recommends wearing face masks in public settings. Students and employees are still asked to report their vaccinations to UK with incentives offered to students to get COVID vaccine. Contact tracing is still provided through UK Health Corps and the COVID operations and START teams who help advise on COVID protocol for the university. And they are continuing to meet, Blanton said. Masks are encouraged but no longer required at UK. The university is offering COVID vaccinations on campus at the Gatton Student Center. COVID testing has moved off campus and students are encouraged to get testing at locations in Lexington or use an at-home test if they show symptoms. We've been successful thus far because we've worked together as a community and we followed the recommended recommendation and best practices that the science and health professionals provide, Bland said. Transy will also not keep a dashboard this year, spokesman Megan Maloney said. The university will update its COVID guidelines in mid-August and will now focus on community levels from the CDC. The campus community will be notified when those levels are at a minimum, medium, or high level, according to the university's CDC website. 
similar to UK, masks are no longer required at Transy, but students, employees may choose to wear them anywhere on campus for any time, for any reason, according to the COVID guidelines. Fayette Public County Schools is also moving away from regular COVID data updates and will no longer send weekly COVID email updates, the school system said this summer. And that's an update on the COVID status at UK and Transy and at LFUCG Public Schools. And we're wrapping up the second half of uh, the second part of today's Herald Leader. And we'll be back in just a minute with obituaries and the balance of today's paper. Please stay tuned. Now we turn to the obituaries. We'll read the name and age of that is reported and also the city it's reported from. We will read these in, these are listed in alphabetical order. From Lexington, Gregory Jean Baptiste, age 39. From Wilmore, John Thomas Barber, 85. Lexington, Judith K. Bauman, B-A-U-M-A-N-N, 80. From Mount Sterling, Tricia Black, 61. From Rich- Richmond, Kentucky, Johanna Boden, B-O-O-D-E-N, 83. From Lexington, Jewel Dean Brandenburg, 75. From Barberville, Russell David Boughton, B-O-U-G-H-T-O-N, 73. London, Kentucky, Dorsey, Dorsey Cottle, 81. Liberty, Sharon Clark, age 82. From Hazard, J.D. Crace, 78. Hillsborough, Doris Dean Denton, 89. From Lexington, Beatrice B. Dollar, 93. From Berea, Shirley Gentry, age 90. From Lexington, Marie Welch, Hedden, H-A-D-D-E-N, 96. From Cynthiana, Fred Hembrick, Jr., 58. From Lexington, Donald Hawkins, age 89. Richmond, Kentucky, Amy Johnson, 25 years of age. Lancaster, Christopher Johnson, 53. From Lexington, Perry Joyner, Sr., 78. From Winchester, Evan Clarence Keller, Kelleher, K-E-L-I-H-E-R, 52. From Jamestown, Betty Lawless Aaron, age 82. Paris, Kentucky, Lydia Lovell, 73. West Liberty, Patricia L. May, 73. From Moorhead, Tillman Tim McBrayer, 84 years of age. From London, Kentucky, Kenneth Ray Mullins, 59. Also from London, Trish Norris, 45. 
from Taylorsville, Wayne Stephen Pruitt, age 52. From Lexington, Suzanne Rose, 60. From Richmond, April Nikki Sawin, S-A-W-I-N, 59. From Lexington, Billy Francis Smith, 88. From Nicholasville, Janice Smith, 83. Waynesburg, Larry Stevens, 70 years of age. Frankfurt, Lori Stone, 47 years of age. From Hazard, Alice Taylor, O-L-L-I-S, 82. From Liberty, Regina B. Taylor, 78. And the final obituary today is from Walter Wilson, Jr., 87 years of age. And now we're going to turn to the opinion section of today's Lexington Herald Leader. Let's see if we can locate that. And we'll start with the... I believe we'll start with letters to the editor. So let's begin there. First, we hear from William Farnau, F-A-R-N-A-U, Fascism Defined. Henry Olson, in an article printed on August 30th, contested president, the president's recent statement that Make America Great Again philosophy is semi-fascism. Maybe mega and fascism aren't a perfect fit, but he missed some important factors that fit the fascist playbook. First, recall the statements played, made by the mega leader, former President Donald Trump. The free press is the enemy of the people. Second, Magda Playbook fails to recognize the rule of law, a keystone of democracies. Finally, and the most telling fascist-related Make America Great Again theme is the big lie about the 2020 presidential election, a lie that the former president and a majority of Republicans continue per to perpetuate. Mr. Olson has a right to his opinion, but failure to recognize these critical issues diminishes his point. As voters, we must begin to eliminate political candidates who fail to call out Make America Great Again for what it is. Begin by sending U.S. Representative Andy Barr home because he didn't feel that the magma leader should be impeached. Then, second, send Senator Rand Paul home, since he didn't believe the former president should be convicted after impeachment. So, Mr. Olson, you can continue to view Make America Great Again through rose-colored glasses, but voters can bring us back from fascist tendencies to democratic principles. And that's from William Farnau, F-A-R-N-A-U, from Lexington. Next, from Glenn Rainey, who writes from Richmond, American Fascist. In response to the editorial in the Washington Post 
by Henry Olson, where he rejected President Joe Biden's assertion that Magna policies are semi-fascist. It is not that the policies of former President Donald Trump and his minions that recall fascism. It is their behavior. The fascists in Europe will militaristic, anti-democratic, imperialist, racist, anti-Semitic, male supremacist, homophobic, ideological bullies who subverted their government to install glib, murderously selfish, relentlessly manipulated and dishonest, demographic, demagogic dictators who could excite and stimulate the organic, the ignorant, the unhappy, and the violent in society with rousing, threatening, insulting oratory. Stop thinking and you will follow me, Hitler said in a speech. I will make you masters of the world. And his opponents cheered. People who questioned or opposed such dictatorial regimes were attacked by self-righteous ideological militant followers and destroyed police and destroyed by police states. The Trumpian policies you talk of are just window dressing. The part Republicans in Congress have bothered to do anything about this is to cater to the whims of anti-government business interests, i.e. their big donors. And spot on. Glenn Rainey, Richmond, Kentucky. Next from Sarah Wellnitz of Lexington, embarrassing Paul. Once again, Kentucky's other idiot center, senator proves that just because he's a doctor, it doesn't mean that he's intelligence. U.S. Senator Rand Paul now wants to start a probe into Dr. Anthony Fauci's conduct during our ongoing COVID-19 crisis. Why not waste less money and time and have a probe into whether or not Senator Paul has a brain? It's fairly obvious he doesn't and is an embarrassment to our state. Next from Aaron Cruz Deer, D-I-E-H-R, who writes from Lexington, both sides. Another day, another both sides editorial from Lexington Herald leader columnist, the Reverend Paul Prather. No, Reverend, we don't all have a measure of truth in us. Some folks simply argue in bad or misled faith. There is no shred of correctness in someone who surely believes Biden stole the election. Neither is there a shred of correctness in someone who believes racism is dead in America. You and I both know that there are more than a few outliers who believe this sort of sentiments. Let's stop fooling ourselves by pretending both sides have an equal amount of work to do in reducing hate in America. Aaron Cruz Deer, D-I-E-H-R, who writes from Lexington. Don J. Don J. Dampier writes from Georgetown, statesmanship. In a true act of statesmanship, to quickly react to the devastating flooding of eastern Kentucky Appalachian counties, 
Governor Andy Beshear, a Democrat, called a special session of the Commonwealth's state legislature to consider a $213 billion flood relief package. In another act of statesmanship, Senate President Robert Stivers and Speaker of the House David Osborne, amazingly, without political posturing, passed a nonpartisan relief funding package within three days, just one vote short of unanimous. That relief is now on its way with a welcoming helping hand for our eastern Kentucky neighbors to get back on their feet. It can be done. It is hoped that this spirit of statesmanship prevails in the future and that our government officials make all the decisions and actions based upon the principles of statesmanship, not on political expediency, in an, in an attitude of service above self. Thanks to our legislature and the governor, working in the spirit of my old Carlisle High School musketeer model, one for all and all for one. Next, we hear from Barbara Rave Plymel of Lexington, who writes, Fatherless Children. Doesn't it seem strange that the religious right and the political right are so morally outraged over a woman seeking an abortion, but have nothing to say about the man who impregnated her? The rush to overturn Roe v. Wade Wade and ban a woman's right to a legal and medically safe procedure, even in cases of rape or incest, leaves the male without any responsibility, either morally or, even more critically, financially. The woman is now forced to give birth and be responsible for raising and supporting the child without any help from the, air quotes here, father. How Christian and morally right is that? At the very least, the father, as determined by a paternity test, should, by law, be responsible for at least one-half the expense of raising the child until he or she reaches 18 years of age. Of course, if the child is adopted, then the adoptive family would have financial responsibility. Why should the mother be forced to have the child and be forced to bear all the financial obligations to raise it? Barbara Rafe Plymel of Lexington. Next, Judy Yount Lyons of Lexington writes, School tax. Fayette County Schools is considering raising taxes this year, even as inflation rate is higher than at any time since 1979, along with the crazy real estate market of 2022. The article regarding a possible school tax increase should be clarified. Fayette County School Board's financial advisory staff states additional cost of school taxes to be $25,000 for a $100,000 home if option two was favored. Your home is $200,000? That would be 50 bucks. Remember that the new base is used each year to figure next year's rate. The PV only sets the value of your property. It's a very important factor that escapes many people. 
It is your local government, school system, and various other county governing bodies that determines the rate and cause causes most tax increases. Thelma Stowe, Stovall, former lieutenant governor, 1975 to 1979, is responsible, though not given credit due, for the 4% increase cap on revenue derived from taxing property without recall. She understood how much the money-hungry our leaders can be as they reach for another building or program that never seems to end. She wanted to rein them in. It's time to hold accountable those who make our laws, regulations, and tax rates. Judy Yount Lyons, penning that from Lexington. And finally, more whiskey fungus. James McDermott writing from Georgetown. Everyone, including Governor Andy Bashir, Scott County Judge Exet, Joe Pat Covington, and Georgetown Mayor Tom Prather, seem overjoyed about Blue Run Spirits Distillery and Rick House proposed for Georgetown. Have they ever heard of Angels Share Black Fungus? They have it in Bardstown. <clears throat> I can't believe there wasn't a chance for residents that live within a mile of the proposed distillery to voice any opposition to the proposal. I welcome being on the bourbon trail, but at what cost? Power washing the house twice a year? And that's the letters to the editor for today, September 4th, 2021. Next, we hear from Linda Blackford, who writes typically weekly for the Herald-Leader. And it's entitled, Small Things with Great Love in Eastern Kentucky. Gwen Johnson was born and raised in Hemphill, a former coal camp up the holler from Fleming Neon in Letcher County. When you live by the boom and bust by the coal that pays your family bills, you know uncertainty and misfortune. Johnson lost three uncles and a baby brother in the mines, and you feel the embrace of good times and of living among family and friends you've loved your whole life. But lately, Johnson feels like the waves of tragedy keep hitting without end. The, the devastation of coal markets amid the scourge of opioids, the pandemic, and now catastrophic flooding that rolled through Hemphill, gaining strength before it crushed Neon Fleming, Fleming Neon below. Right now, sitting in an open shelter surrounded by boxes of detergent, rubber boots, canned beans, and shampoo, she clings to the well-known saying by Mother Teresa, Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Jonathan, a 64, excels at small things that add up to quite a lot. She chairs the board of the Hemphill Community Center, formerly its elementary school, and started the Black Sheep Brick Oven Bakery on the first floor as a way to make food locally and give employment to people in recovery. During the pandemic, she got a grant from the Letcher County Culture Hub 
to build an outdoor pavilion with Wi-Fi because so many children were sent home from school with Chromebooks but no internet. The pavilion is now a central staging center for relief supplies where the neighbors charge their phones to tell relatives they had survived the night of July 28. The electricity kept flowing in part thanks to solar panels on the roof that Johnson secured with the help of Mountain Association. She relies on the help of volunteers and doesn't want to take credit even when it's deserved. In the corner of the playground, Johnson's daughter and son-in-law help her build two bucket showers with a big kettle that heats up enough water to fill a five-gallon bucket. She joined forces with Churches of Christ Disaster Response Team, whose members are staying upstairs at the community center by night while they help fix people's houses by day. They persuaded West Virginia Water to park a water truck in the center's parking lot. Unlike other sections of eastern Kentucky, no one from Hemp Hill died, not even any dogs or cats, she said, or the pot-bellied pig who lives a few houses down. But every house along the holler was affected from a little water to total destruction. We had no help from the government. We called everybody, so we just started doing, she said. We're just a coal camp, and there's an invisible line between here and Whitesburg. So we have to do, we have to make do, and improvise. Making do was all they can do these days. Hemp Hill, which runs along a stream that's considered one of, eh, just a minute. That's one of the headwaters of the Kentucky River is just one tiny corner of a national disaster, one of thousands of stories of despair and resilience and maybe even recovery. But that's a long way off for a community that is still suffering from disasters that came before this one. As a community activist, Johnson has thought long and hard about Eastern Kentucky and at the point, at this point, doesn't even know what to say. It's a bafflement of what to do, she said. It's a bafflement for Governor Bashir. It's a bafflement to all of us. Nowhere to go. Tony Potter lives close to the community center on land he owns with his brother and sister. His house caught the full brunt of the floodwaters and was totally destroyed. He's taking turns staying with each of them and spends some of his days helping Johnson at the center. I've lost, he lost everything. I'll be okay in a couple of months, he said. He'll probably build some kind of a shed on the property just to have a place of his own again. Johnson lives on the home place, as it's called, land that's inherited from his family that he and his siblings pay tax on. But many people may not have a title, or maybe that title was lost in the floods. So, according to Johnson, that means FEMA will only reverse them at the rental rate of about $4,800 to $6,000. They have nowhere else to go, Johnson said. How can they afford, can they afford to relocate?
Or what about sewers? Although Hemphill is close to Fleming Neon, the city sewer service stops down the road at Goose Creek. Many people exist with septic tanks which were flooded or maybe straight pipes that go into the creek. The powers that be never built the city sewer system up to them, even when coal severance taxes were coming in. Now there's practically no market, no money left. When coal markets were good, Kentucky was urged to put aside some coal severance dollars as a hedge against a down market, but they declined to do so. They kicked the can down the road. There was a great need, and you saw the competition for it, and the reality is most of the county officials were not good, stewards of the money, said D. Davis, executive director of the Center for Rural Strategies in Whitesburg. It's not like they stole it, but it was not invested strategically. The real deal. When government fails, as it frequently does in rural areas, is when people like Johnson, activists with an immense drive to help people all the time, step in. That's just what my family does, she said. But they're also fighters. Her father was a part of the United Mine Workers of America before the strike at the Hemp Hill Elkhorn Coal Company, and he was arrested for allegedly burning down a coal lamp. He confessed on his deathbed to the crime. Quote, this county has been a place of resistance and a place of deep pride that we have resisted, she said. I'm just so tired of my people not mannering. Johnson is the real deal, says D. Davis. She's not like Pollyanna. She's been dealing with people who are fighting addiction. She's created systems that work for people to get them back in the workforce. And she's making a real difference. Her story is what makes living here worth it, he added. It's not because everything is good and we're all happy eating peaches of cream. Yeah, apologize just a minute, please. At 6 p.m., when the community center closes for the night, Johnson and other volunteers drive around even more remote hollers and roads to see what they can do to help people. Tuesday night, she said, her eyes welling with tears, she found a grandmother on oxygen sheltering under a carport with her special niece's grandson. One man she knew was living in his truck. Systemic problems like climate change and mine mitigation are a distraction for now. Here's the battle at the end of the day. If you can't feed your clothes, if you can't feed and close your babies, then what the F does it matter? The bafflement she will leave to the experts, a game without rules, as Davis calls it. How do you imagine in six months what happens when the people Gwen is helping in tents face the cold? He says, but it's a hard to make a six-month plan when people can't get six days ahead. 
Johnson will keep helping because that's what she does. That's what her mother, who died in February, did. But she can't stop thinking about the boy with special needs and his grandma living under a carport. What else can she do for them? What do you what do you even do with all that? She asked, her eyes welling with tears. It's a lot. It's just been a lot. And that report is by um, Linda Blackford for the Lexington Herald Leader. This concludes the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader. Today is September 4th, twenty. 22. I hope you've enjoyed <clears throat> today's broadcast and have a happy Labor Day Halloween and the balance of the fall that's right around the corner. Your reader today is David Heffley. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.